Um, just a couple of housekeeping notes. I've got three handouts and a booklet up here today. Uh, the booklet uh, is Pastor Ted's Forbidden Them Not, which is actually about baptism and church membership of children, but there's helpful information there on the conversion of our children, and we're going to talk about that today. So help, those are free. Help yourself to those. Um, I've got, I've got a, a one-page, well, front and back summary of what we're going to talk about today on the conversion of our children. People have lots of questions about that topic. So this will, we're actually going to talk about what's on this page, but this is for your review um, if you want to pursue that a little bit further. Um, this was a handout from our second class when we talked about getting to the heart of our children. And there's just more there than we could cover at one setting. So, and we had this uh, last week and they're all gone. So I've got a few more of those. And I referred, I think maybe last week, to um, the folks on the family website with information concerning gender confusion. Um, and I've printed some of that stuff off from their website, and that's here if you want to take advantage of that. So help yourself to any of those. It's one thing <clears throat> to acknowledge theologically and intellectually that we are altogether helpless when it comes to everything. You all understand that, right? You can't draw a breath without God. I mean, we, think we, we all acknowledge, you know, if you're going to stand up and preach a sermon or if you're going to teach a Sunday school class, you really need God's help. But yeah, I need God's help every second of every day. My heart's not going to keep beating without God's help. My lungs are not going to keep breathing without God's help. So it's one thing to acknowledge that we're helpless when it comes to everything. But if you want to take that helplessness down off the intellectual shelf and feel it in the depths of your soul, become a parent. And you will feel your helplessness. So we could call this series on parenting Humility 101. And it's true. But it's just as true that God gives grace to the humble. All right, would you read what's in red? All I've done with these Bible verses is applied them, which is a perfectly legitimate thing to do, applied them to the whole business of parenting. So you read what's in red, okay? And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I should have another parenthesis after the word humble that says parents. God gives grace to the humble parents. But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. There are, there are a few things that will humble us like our children. They have a thousand ways. They don't know it, okay? But they have a thousand ways to remind us how much we need the wisdom that God gives us. So let's stay in that place of humility because God gives grace to the humble. Um, we looked last time at the nature of our children. They're unique individual image bearers of God. They're moldable, pliable creatures. They come from the womb, either boys or girls, period. And we come today to our children come from the womb as sinners. <clears throat> Amen. 
Yeah, y'all agree with that? So we can, we can skip this, right? Those sweet little blonde-haired, blue-eyed babies are at heart rebels against God. That's what they are. The Bible is plain. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. The wicked are strange from the womb. They go astray from birth. Speaking, they go astray from birth. Hello? They go astray from birth. Speaking lies. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. I'm not going to take time to read this, Romans 5. This is the whole principle of representation. Our kids and we got our sinfulness from our father Adam. And it is undeniable. Our kids are not sinners because they were underprivileged. They're not sinners because they had bad examples. They're not sinners because they lived in a bad neighborhood. They're not sinners because they were underprivileged. They're sinners because they were born that way. And they sin because they're sinners. They don't sin because they had somebody did something wrong to them, and so they're striking back. No. They're not sinners because of the color of their skin. They're not sinners. They don't do wrong things because... I list all the reasons. Why. No, they sin because they're sinners. It's in them. And it's going to come out. Out of the heart are the issues of life. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and, and on the list goes. And if we take those scriptures seriously, and we must, then we understand that our sweet-looking, innocent-appearing, harmless, and adorable children have the potential apart from restraining grace, to become Hitler's. Does that bother you? Does it bother you that I put his picture up here when I'm talking about our children? It's not cruel. It's not a return to the dark ages. It's not barbaric. It does not undercut and undermine or otherwise destroy their self-image. It's honest and it's necessary if we hope to deal successfully with our children to confess and admit and own that our kids are sinners through and through and apart from the general restraining grace of God and apart from the special saving grace of God, this is what our kids could become. Because they have it in them. I have it in me. And that sinfulness will come to expression in various ways in different children and at different stages of life. Some will be more strong-willed, some more compliant, some more hard-hearted, some less. But every child who comes into this world comes into it as a sinner in every part of their being. You've never had, I think I said this before, you've never had to teach a child to lie. How many of your kids have ever lied to you? You taught them how to do that, right? No. Nobody nobody ever had to teach your kids how to cheat. Or how how to, Johnny, let me show you, son. Here's how you become the center of the universe. (laughs) They got that down. They had it when they came into the world. 
They had it when they when when your son or your daughter was delivered. What's one of the first things they did? They screamed. Here I am. Okay, I know. They were just catching their first breath. I got that. But you understand the point. So the sinfulness of our children <clears throat> means two things, at least two things. Number one, they desperately need correction. And the Bible is crystal clear on this. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Correct your son. Correct your son. Correct your son. Parentheses daughter. And he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. The fact that our kids are sinners means that they need correction. And we must correct them whether they're converted or not. You don't wait for your kids to become Christians until you start correcting them. Habits will be deeply, deeply, deeply ingrained if we wait until hopefully someday they become a Christian. So it's always right to ask our children to do right, converted or not. It's always right to correct them for doing wrong, converted or not. It's always right to correct your children. God's moral standards are not just for professing Christians. So our children, because they're sinners and inclined to do wrong from the womb, need correction. But here's where I want to park for just a few minutes. Not only do they need correction, but they desperately need conversion. It's not just that they bring shame to their parents. It's not just that they get into trouble. It's not just that they get a bad reputation. It's not just that you can't trust them. It's not just that they get into trouble at school. It's not just that they might wind up in prison. They might wind up in hell forever without conversion. And again, the Bible is clear, and, and I, we're just going to fly through this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's our kids short of conversion. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. That's the, that's the Adam and Christ parallel. We got, our, we got our sinfulness from Adam. We got our justification from Jesus. But the point I'm making here is that condemnation came to all men, including those sweet, adorable, lovely little children of yours. Mine were more lovely than yours, in my humble but correct opinion. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Our kids need conversion. And what that means, that our kids need conversion, what that means is that we've got to be giving the gospel to our kids over and over and over and over again. Let me remind you of the words of Deuteronomy 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them. 
when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What does that mean? Frontals and binding stuff on your hand and doorposts and gates and when you lie down and when you rise up, when you walk by the way, what it means simply is that the Word of God should permeate every facet of life for us. The doorposts of your house, it governs what goes on inside your house. The Word of God, you, you write it on your gates, it governs what goes on when you leave your house and you go out into the world. We ought to be living by the principles of the Word of God on your hands, on your what you think and what you do should all be governed by the Word of God. When you walk by the way, when you sit down, when you rise up, the whole of life should be permeated with the Word of God. And what is at the heart of the Word of God? The good news of the gospel. So because our kids are sinners, not only do they need correction, but they need conversion. And what's the means God God uses to bring conversion to our kids? It's the gospel. And without that... They'll never be converted. We give our kids the gospel over and over and over again. Our children need to see the gospel at work in us. They need to see that our hope is in Jesus. They need to see, not just here, they need to see that our reliance is on what Jesus has done and is doing. They need to see that we're resting in Him. They need to see our repentance. They need to see our joy in being forgiven every single day. They need to see the realities of the gospel being worked out in our lives all the time. What does that mean? It means we better be having dealings with the gospel every day. You don't just deal with the gospel when you become converted and then you're done with the gospel. Do I need to believe and repent every single day of my life? Yes, 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 yes. Do I need the forgiveness that the gospel holds out to me every single day of my life? Yes, 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 yes. Has there ever been a day that I have not sinned? No. And our kids need to see the realities of that being worked out in our lives. If If our kids never see us broken... Because of our sin. Will they ever be broken because of their sin? If they never see or hear us on our knees begging God for mercy, will they see that they need to do that too? Even if we talk about it all day long, if they never see it, in the way we live, then what's that going to say to them about the realities of the gospel? We need to be sure that our Bible stories end up pointing to Jesus. When I grew up listening to Bible stories, it was all about courage and do the right thing. And even if nobody else is doing it, you do the right thing. You know, um, Joshua stood up and exercised courage and we need to be courageous. And Daniel was the only guy that didn't, Daniel and his three friends were the only guys that didn't bow down, so do the right thing even when nobody else does. Well, those are, that's fine, but every story in the Bible points to Jesus. 
The theme of the Old Testament is the history of re-what? Re it's a history of redemption. And who's at the center of redemption? The Redeemer. And his name is Jesus. And if our Bible stories don't, for, for the greater part, if they don't end up pointing to Jesus, then we're missing the boat with our kids. We need to be sure that our discipline sessions always include the gospel as our only hope of conquering the sin that dwells within us. Um, so take advantage of some of these excellent resources on pointing your children to Jesus. There's the little book I mentioned from Pastor Ted, Forbid Them Not. <clears throat> There's um, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is really helpful by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Um, these three books, I've already mentioned Forbid Them Not. Uh, don't make me count to three. In the back has a very helpful section on pointing your children to Jesus and your child's profession of faith by Dennis Gunderson. And I recommend those books highly to you. There are lots of questions about how you deal with your kids and how you answer their questions about conversion. There are two extremes we need to avoid. One is pronouncing them converted and granting them assurance. That's not our place to do. The Holy Spirit does that. The other extreme to avoid is discouraging their early young childlike faith. If your children are quite young, remember not to expect adult-like evidences of conversion. Okay? It's really easy to do. We want, we want to see things in them that look like things in us. They're kids. They're children. They're not grown-ups. Look for childlike evidences of repentance and faith. It's easy for us to expect more from our children than God expects of us as adults. What's our first inclination as, as parents after our children profess to be converted? Hey, Dad, Mom, listen, I think I was saved last night. I prayed and asked Jesus to take my sins away. And we're related. And we, and we talk to them about that. And we, well, what made you want to do that? And and do you understand what your sins are? And we ask them questions. And, but then after, after they come to us and say they've been saved, what's our first inclination with regard to our children? The first time they act selfishly or the first time they tell a lie or the first time they cheat after they profess to be converted. Uh, probably wasn't real. Time out. Is that the way God deals with you and me? Yes or no? No. Then ah, be patient with your children and point them again to Jesus. As a general rule, it is never wrong to encourage your children to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus from an early age, nor is it inappropriate to tell them that the surest evidence that their faith and repentance are genuine is the fruit of an obedient life, that they really are turning away from sin and really are serious about following Christ. But how often should we tell them to repent and believe? What? Every day. Every day. Does that mean you get converted over and over again every day? No. No, but repenting and believing every day is a pretty good sign that you've been converted and you see your ongoing need for the gospel. What's the language of the Bible? What should, what should we look for in our children who profess to be converted? 
Well, what's the language of the Bible? Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 9, and 10 describes those who are in union with Christ as having put off the old man and having put on the new man who is being, who is being renewed. What does, that, what does that mean in a child? Well, it means that there's going to be some discernible change of heart and mind and action with regard to their sins. We're going to begin to see some changes in our kids. The sins so often evident in children are things like pride and selfishness and irresponsibility and blame shifting and just plain old disobedience and bad attitudes. Do you see that in your kids? Yeah. Guess what? I see them in me too. But that's often what we see in our kids. And we should begin, if they, if they profess to be converted, we should begin to see the beginnings of change in those things. Not perfection, but change. A change of mind about those things. They should begin to think differently about sinful attitudes and behaviors. And begin to see them as sinful. They're able to identify their sins. Their answer should never be, Johnny, what, did, what just happened here? Um, what was what was wrong with the way you treated your sister? I don't know. That is an unacceptable answer. <laughs> That's always an unacceptable answer. But especially if our kids profess to be converted, I don't know. Is that's not a good indicator that they're understanding what sin is and being honest about it in their own hearts. There ought to at least be some measure of sorrow for sin, for those sinful attitudes and behaviors, their sins ought to grieve them. They're not gonna, they're not always gonna break down in tears and sob for an hour, okay? They're children. Look for childlike evidences of conversion. And their sins ought to grieve them not just because they hurt us as their parent or their brother or sister, but because they offend God. And we need to help them understand that. We should begin to see a willingness to own up to their sin. Some humility, some better attitudes, a more tender conscience, a more ready obedience, some spiritual interest. We won't see any of those things perfectly. We may only see little bits of them at first. And in some children, the changes will be less obvious than in others because you've required them to be obedient and kind and you punish them for bad attitudes and selfishness before they were converted. We should begin to see at least a measure of understanding about who Jesus Christ is and what He did. And we need to explain that to them over and over again. They need to see why they need Him as a Savior. And that knowledge about Jesus must move into trust, resting in Christ alone. Okay, those things are not always easy to see. And they call for careful discernment and patience on our part and gentleness with our children so that we don't discourage them too quickly. Okay? So don't suddenly, they come to you and say, hey, mom, dad, I asked Jesus to save me last night. You are a Christian. Wow, that's, ah, yes, don't ever doubt that. Don't, don't be too quick to pronounce them converted and you give them assurance. The Holy Spirit gives them assurance. But don't, on the other side of that coin, don't discourage their childlike faith and repentance. Can children be converted? Absolutely. Are they sinners? Yes. Did Jesus die for sinners? Yes. Do they need to trust Jesus? Yes. 
they can be converted. So we need a lot of wisdom and patience and gentleness and understanding with our kids. Okay. Um, all right. I'm gonna. Um, I want to pause and ask for questions, but on November sixth, um, I'll not be here. Where our oldest grandson is being baptized up in Warsaw, Indiana, and we're going to see his baptism, and we're really excited about that. He's um, 19, and uh, seems to be real genuine evidence that he's a Christian. So I'll not be here. But what we're going to do on the 19th is we're going to have two families and um, two moms and two dads up here on the stage, and they're going to be a panel, and we'll have a panel discussion. If you have particular questions, and they've, they've both raised several children, and they've been at it for a long time, uh, if you have questions, please write them down ahead of time and give them to me, and I'll pass them on to our panel. And then, of course, the, we can do live Q&A on that Sunday. And I think that'll be a really helpful um, class time. So we'll look forward to that two weeks from today. Um, so jot your questions down, uh, give them to me, and I'll pass them on to our panel. And I'll let you know who they are. I've already talked to them, but I'll let you know for sure who they are next Sunday. Okay. So far, we've drawn a lot of material from the book of Proverbs, and there's a lot there to draw upon. We're shifting gears here now. But when we come to the New Testament, the texts dealing with parenting are relatively few. Family life is sometimes in the background. There, there's the images of family life in the background. But the major New Testament text on parenting is the well-known passage in Ephesians 6 and the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3. Here's Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're going to zero in on verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Of the Lord. There are three things I want to look at in this text. One who has addressed what they must not do and what they must do. Okay, who has addressed is fathers. Now, Paul is obviously addressing fathers particularly, but I don't think Paul's intent here is to exclude mothers and to say there's no way you mothers can provoke your children to wrath. Nor do I think Paul is generally excluding mothers from the whole scope of parenting responsibilities. He was too careful an Old Testament scholar to not know all that Proverbs said about mothers. And he used the general word for parents in verse 1. Children, obey your parents. Plural. That's mom and dad. So already said that. So moms, you are not off the hook here in Ephesians 6.4. But I do think he's pointing, he's pointedly speaking to fathers. We can only speculate as to why this exhortation comes to fathers, especially, not exclusively, but especially. It may be because fathers are the heads of their families and they're responsible to see that this exhortation is carried out in their home by mothers as well. 
It may be because it's the peculiar temptation of fathers to exasperate and dishearten their children. I think dads are more likely to do that than moms, for the most part. That's a general observation. We are generally not as tender, understanding, or patient as our wives are with our children. You think? Are there ever impatient moms? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. But that's a broad general observation, and it may be that Paul's nailing dads on that point. It may also be that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul was addressing dads because dads, this is incontrovertible. Dads, more often than moms, bail out on their kids. It's just true. Who do the kids end up living with if a marriage falls apart? Most of the time. Mom. Dads bail out more often than moms. In 1960, let this sink in. One out of every ten children under 18 lived without their father. That was 1960. Fast forward to 2018, one out of every four lived without their dad. Who is most likely to bail on their kids? dads. And the sad part of that is that a lot of dads bail out without ever leaving the home. They pour themselves into their work, their hobbies, their recreation, themselves, but they don't always pour themselves into their children. So Paul is after dads here. And what he says is a really, really strong exhortation. Do not provoke your children to anger. Their parallel passage in Colossians says, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. It could be translated, stop provoking your children to anger. Or, or it could be translated, don't ever be provoking your children to anger. Anybody in here a Greek scholar? Come on. Jason? Nobody? Y'all? Y'all, this is, this is, in Greek grammar, this is a present active imperative. An imperative is a command. A present active imperative means it's ongoing. Don't ever be exasperating your children. Stop exasperating your children, indicating it's been going on. Now quit. That's the force of these words. Stop provoking your children. Don't ever be exasperating them, that they may not lose heart or be discouraged. Now, it's really, really important to understand what this is not saying. Dads, don't provoke your children to wrath. Moms, you too, okay? Don't provo- it's not saying to never do anything that would cause your children to be unhappy or even to be upset with you or even to be angry. There'll be any number of things you must say to your children that they won't like. No, you may not have another piece of candy. Yes, you have to finish your vegetables before you may have dessert. No, you cannot go to that movie. No, you may not borrow the car. Yes, you have to clean your room first. Yes, you need to finish your homework first. Yes, you must let your sister go first. Just because Johnny or Susie throws a fit or stomps their foot or bursts into tears, it doesn't mean necessarily that you provoke them to anger. It may simply mean you've crossed their will. 
and they don't like it. And you got to stick to your guns. Okay? There, 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 there's, there's such a need for keeping the balance when we look at the commands of Scripture, okay? Um, remember Hebrews 12, 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. So have your kids ever come to you, oh, mom, dad, I just lied. Would you punish me, please? No, I mean, I could see, I could see a time where that might happen, but you get my point. All discipline for the moment seems, I'll be so glad if you just, if you just ground me for three weeks. No, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. So the things we require of our children are, they're not going to be generally too happy about that. Have we provoked them to anger? Not necessarily so. But there's more here than just making your kids upset. The words in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 have to do with making resentful, provoking, irritating, making bitter, exasperating. We should not be dealing with our children in ways that make them frustrated, cast down, dispirited, hopeless, feeling like they can never satisfy us no matter what they do. They become hopeless and bitter. That's what Paul is telling us as dads not to do. So how do you know if you're provoking your children or if it's just their sinful response to your just and wise requirements. We'll work out some details of that in a minute, but very broadly speaking, let me say that we should study carefully the pattern of God the Father as He deals with us as His children. Does God ever provoke us to wrath? Does He ask us, Hard things. Yeah. But does he ever exasperate us? Does God ever make us bitter against him? We sometimes become bitter, but not because of the way he's dealt with us. How is it that some of the tough commands of Scripture don't exasperate us or provoke us to anger? It's that they come in a context. How do we know if we're provoking Dan or if it's a sinful response? They come in a context of unquestionable fatherly love and commitment. What God calls us to do comes in a context of absolutely unquestionable fatherly love and commitment. They come in a context of incarnational love. God became man in order to redeem us. When God, who took on our flesh, calls us to do this. We understand that's a context of incarnational love. So dads, moms, do you ever try to put yourself in your child's shoes? You walked in them once, you know. You didn't always wear a size 9 or 13. You are a size two, once upon a time. Do the things we, we require of our children come in a context of incarnational love? We're walking in their shoes. They come in a context, God's 
commands to us come in a context of intimate knowledge of us, covenant commitment to us, and gracious provision for us. That's how God's commands come to us in that context. But so often, especially as dads, we're not nearly involved with our kids as we ought to be. We've been too busy to spend more than a few moments with them, too busy to tuck them in at night, too busy to play with them in the leaves, too busy to take them to the park, too busy to sit down and listen to their fears, too busy to pray with them. So when we require something of them that's hard, it's almost like we're a stranger suddenly invading a personal spake and barking out orders, and they resent it. If what we're saying to them does not come in a context of unquestionable fatherly love, incarnational love, intimate knowledge of covenant commitment to and gracious provision for us. So the question is, how much like God the Father are we to our children? This is a penetrating question. Think about it. Before your children have a clearly defined concept of God in their minds, they will have a clear notion of what a father is. Ask your four-year-old to describe the character of God to you. He might come up with a couple of things. Maybe maybe he's learned a catechism question or two. But ask your four-year-old, tell me about Daddy. What's he like? Your four-year-old can tell you plenty about Daddy. See, my point is that before a child has a well-formed concept of God as Father, he will have a well-formed concept of Father. And where does he get it? Dad, he gets it from you. So when our children learn that God is Father, that will either set well with them or it will cause them to struggle with the fact that God is described as Father. It hangs on what kind of a father you've been. You're creating for your children a concept of fatherhood. And they will pour that into what they begin to understand about the fatherhood of God. So let's think about some ways in which we can provoke our children to wrath. All right, I got to make a decision here. I've got about 12 things I want to give you (laughs) in ways that we can provoke our children to wrath. I'm not trying to provoke you to wrath, okay? Um. Let me, let me just start this. We'll, we'll get in two or three maybe, and then we'll come back to them next week. Number one, and these are obvious, okay? Don't expect more than your children can deliver. They're just kids. Remember, you walked in their shoes once, okay? Stay in those shoes. You wouldn't expect a three-year-old to do what your 10-year-old is doing. Not all of your children have the same gifts and abilities, strengths and weaknesses. You must know them. Proverbs 27, 23 says, Know well the condition of your flocks. Know your children well. 
If I ask you dads, not moms, if I ask you dads to write a detailed paragraph on each of your children right now, outlining their personality, strengths, weaknesses, capacities, etc., could you do it without too much difficulty? Or would you sit there for a while and think? I hope you could. Don't expect more than they can deliver. This is where we have to distinguish between their sinnerhood and their creaturehood. When you're teaching how to use a fork and a spoon, you don't berate them for missing their mouth. Right? You don't berate them when the spoon is shakily making its way to the mouth, and before it ever gets to its target, the potatoes wind up on the floor. You clumsy! No, 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 no. That's part of their creaturehood. But if they take that spoonful of potatoes and they look at their sister across the way and they go, bing! Different story. Okay? If your child is not blessed with a natural athletic coordination, you don't give them a tongue lashing for missing the ball or falling down or not scoring the goal. But if he argues with the referee and gets in his face, you discipline him for his disrespect to authority, even if the call was lousy. And there were many of those in yesterday's soccer game with Davis County and Bowling Green. Oh, my goodness. Does your uncoordinated C student and that's the best they can do because that's what God gave them. Does your uncoordinated C student feel feel the same love and affection that your athletic A student feels? Don't expect more than they can deliver. They're not, all your kids are not A students, I'm sorry to tell you. They're not all going to be soccer players. They're not, they're not all going to be prodigies on the piano. They're not. Some of your children are going to be average run-of-the-mill people. What? Not my child. Some of them will. There's a desperate need for balance here. We always want to encourage our children to excel and to do their best to the glory of God. And we need to stretch them and not set the bar too low, but that can very easily become an obsession to produce overachievers, which is often little more than an ego boost for the parents. Don't live out your failed dreams in your children. Know your children well. And we'll come back to these next time. I got many more. Okay. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Let's pray together. Lord, help us. We so desperately need grace and wisdom. Both moms and dads. And our focus for a few moments has been dads especially. Will you help us? Help us to walk in our children's shoes. Help us to know them. Help us to love them. Help us to point them to you.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.